0: I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the B.S.G. Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Kenneth Cookier, who is a Senior Editor at The Economist and also lectures at Oxford Said Business School. He's a best-selling author and has a podcast of his own called Babbage. I'm also joined by his co-author, Francis de Vericor, who is a Professor of Management at the European School of Management and Technology in Berlin. Together with Victor meyer Schoenberger. They've just completed a very interesting book called Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil, which just came out this year. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So welcome, gentlemen. Ah, Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Your book deals with framing. I think we all loosely know what that means, but Ken, could you define it for us a little more sharply?
1: Absolutely. So framing is something that we all feel that we know what it is and we do it all the time. And in fact, it is true that we do it all the time. But it's not certain that we actually really understand it, and it's, what is clear is that we don't fully appreciate it. Framing is the ability to generate mental models, representations or abstractions of the world that help us make sense of the world. If we weren't always generating these mental models in our background, in our minds, we would just be overwhelmed with the sort of cacophony of experiences and stimuli that we receive by interacting in reality. When we frame things, what we're doing is we're actually condensing and consolidating all of that's happening to things that are now cognitively manageable. So by framing and generating mental models, we can actually, for example, pick out a conversation as the aphorism goes in a cocktail party that's directed to us rather than all the dinner around us. But if you take that one metaphor and think about it more broadly when it comes to making decisions and thinking through problems, how we frame an issue will affect the alternatives that we see and therefore the choices that we make and therefore the outcomes we get. So, this very basic function of cognition can be transformed into a tool we can deliberately use to make better decisions.
0: Perhaps there's a paradox here which I'd like to explore. You're saying that we all have this basic ability to frame but you're also implying by writing a book that we could be better at this. What is the underexploited potential around the capability of framing? This is um, a human cognitive advantage that we have.
2: I think we are at a stage now where, especially with the rise of the machine, with the use of big data and machine learning algorithms, where this trait, which is so powerful, has been put in the background slowly. And if you look also at the 20 last years of research in decision sciences, and if you've read Kahneman and all the literature around him, basically, we, what we are told is that we are very, very, very bad decision makers. We need to be very careful, not to be overconfident, not to confirm, etc., etc. et cetera. So um, the feeling that, that Victor, Ken, and I had is that, yes, the machine is coming, but there is something very precious that we should not forget, and we should work on, because in the end, this is really what's going to make the difference. That's basically
0: the starting point of the book. We've spoken about the perennial gap between the potential of framing and its actuality. But I think you're also saying that there's something very topical about the rise of technology, which is exacerbating that gap. Could you tell us about that? Is it the false belief in the primacy of data or something else? No, there's something of that. We live in the di-
2: digital age, basically. So everybody is fascinated by the power of the machine. There's a lot of attention to the, the power of data, collecting the data, analytics. And so this becomes at the forefront. And there is a risk into that uh, when, when you take that route. There's the risk that organizations are putting aside what makes us special. This trend that I just described is what we call in the in the book, the rationalist. And if you embrace that view, which is fine to some extent, you run the risk of leaving aside what makes us very powerful as human beings. And I would even add that our ability to frame is required to make the best of the machine, to make the best of the data that we have. Because without the proper models to
0: interpret the data, data is meaningless. So is it the problem of overdependence on technology? Like pilots? who lose their ability to fly if they don't occasionally fly manually? Or is it something else? What is at the root of the distraction of technology, which is undermining our ability to frame? It's so interesting to hear you
1: ask the question in the way that you are, because what you are actually trying to do validates our point. You are taking the book, and you're trying to find a category with which to place it. You're trying to sort of put it into something where you've cognitively already mapped out, such as the primacy of data or that technology has superseded our capacities and therefore we're weaker human beings because we're not as honed to making these decisions. And it turns out that all of those things are true. but So there's nothing wrong with that, but there's something else apart still. And that thing apart is the fact that this basic function of human cognition that we've been doing since we've been children, in fact, just beyond toddlers, is now something that we can actually harness if we train it and think deliberately about it.
0: Well, that was actually going to be my next question. This trait that we all have, presumably some of us are better at it than others, and I wanted to ask you, how trainable do you think the ability to frame is?
1: It turns out that in some domains, we can actually become better in practice. In other instances, we can't. And the difference is this. When it comes to taking a frame and applying it, we can become better with practice. And in fact, just deliberate self-consciousness that there are such a thing as frames and that we can choose it does make us better at it. And there's techniques that we can use to become better at it. For example, we can build up a repertoire so that we actually have multiple mental models. We can do cognitive foraging, this idea of going from one thing to another to sort of prepare our minds so that when the time comes where we need to think differently, we can actually embrace frames from elsewhere and apply it to the problems that we have. All of that's true. But in other areas, and this was called in sociology and in in cognitive science, insight problems. These are, to say, problems in which you can't get better with practice and repeated effort, but it's an aha moment that in those instances, it's not simply about training per se, it's really about being prepared mentally and cognitively to find different solutions, to know that you sometimes need to reframe, to invent a new frame, or to find a frame from elsewhere, and to bring it in. So, we know that fortune favors the brave. Here, fortune favors the diverse. Fortune favors the the mind that is agile and has a sort of plasticity about seeing the world in multiple different ways.
0: Let's talk about the partition of cognitive tasks. Many AI books have some sort of framework which says that the human should do this and the computer should do that. So Judea Pearl, for instance, talks about leaving what he calls correlative thinking to machines, but causal and counterfactual thinking or imagination to humans. And Kai Lee talks about leaving things which concern empathy and creativity to humans and the rest to machines. I'd like to solicit your view on how we repartition cognitive tasks moving forwards?
2: In the end, when you develop a machine to solve a problem, behind it, in fact, there is an act of reframing. If you take AlphaGo, for instance, which everybody knows, I'm I'm sorry to use this example, it's it's overused, but this one is pretty clear. What DeepMind tried to do is to beat uh, Lee Sedol at AlphaGo, at Go, they didn't try to frame the problem as what is a good strategy to be listed on? They reframe that question as not what is a good strategy, but how, by which process we can get a good strategy, which was setting up a database, uh, setting up the training algorithm, and then getting a solution that they would not understand a priori, but they will understand the process. So I cannot give a rule of thumb to say, well, which problems we should leave to the machine. If you can do this act of reframing, whatever the problem is if you have the capacity to set up the database to set up the process that will help you get a solution why not the only thing is that this very act of reframing the problem is coming from the human and sometimes even in the training of your algorithms there's a lot of human framing getting in, involved so i don't believe in that dichotomy in that sense now of course you know the emotional aspect not going to be left to the machine, but we need to be careful. I mean, machines are starting to learn to recognize emotions and, and we develop robots for elderly people in Japan, for instance, to cater to their needs. So, so the answer is framing will always be part of the, of the problem and the answer. And that's why I think in order to enable and leverage the power of the machine, you need to be a good framer.
1: Yeah, let, let me build on that because I think it's so essential. In the case of Pearl. Uh, who we cite, by the way, we know very well. In fact, I know him extremely well. I was on the board of advisors of the Daniel Pearl Foundation, because I worked with Danny at the Wall Street Journal 20 years ago. And, and I'm very good friends with his family, in particular, his parents. So, Pearl is riddled throughout our chapter on causality, which is chapter three. Secondly, in terms of Kaifu Li, again, as you can imagine, as a journalist, I know him very well. I reviewed his book for The Economist. And, and he's still talking to me as well, because I was critical of it. I think it's, it's very tempting to point out the emotional qualities of human beings and then say, well, you know, we can be emotional, we can be compassionate, we can be empathetic, but the machine can't. That happens to be true, but it's a bit facile. The contribution that we're making is different. We're identifying that, there's a, that there is this idea of mental models that have been around, that cognitive science has demonstrated, that computers cannot do it and AI cannot do it. And if you wanted to distill... To crystallize what it actually means, there's three elements. The first one is causality, the second one is counterfactuals, and the third is constraints. And these three elements are things that AI fundamentally cannot do. As Pearl points out, the machine cannot think in causality, humans can. When machines do think with causal reasoning, it's because human beings have instructed causality to the machine. Secondly, counterfactuals it's this idea of machines can only process, and AI works by looking at the data that it has and interpreting it extracting some form of meaning from it but the point about human beings is we don't rely exclusively on the information and experience and data that we have we can also see things that aren't there we can we have imagination we can envision a future of which we have no direct experience and then we can work to build it counterfactuals are thinking about the reality that doesn't exist as opposed to the computer that thinks of only the data that does exist And then thirdly, constraints. Human beings can apply meaningful constraints to those dreams, if you will, to those envisions, to those counterfactuals, where the computer can't. And when the computer tries, sure, they can give you one trillion constraints in a fraction of a second. They're not going to be the right ones. It's not going to happen in time. And human beings are good at that. In fact, we often fail at everything that we do, but that we stumble along and we don't understand the periodic table until we do, we don't understand fusion or fission until we do, but eventually we do. That ability to make abstractions, that ability to understand causality, to dream with constraints, that's what we can do that computers cannot.
0: I'd like to ask you about thinking in the digital age. Uh, clearly, there are superficial differences in what we need to think about now. There are new technologies and digital ecosystems and what have you, but. My question is, there anything essentially different about thinking in a digital age? For instance, anything arising from interconnectivity or excessive data that makes the task of thinking the job to be done essentially different?
1: The answer, of course, is an unqualified yes. And that is that the point about these digital technologies that we're in right now is it makes the environment of work and living unstable. We had by and large, a relatively stable existence in the ascent of man between, I'll call it, I'll just roughly date it, 500 BC, when we had the ancient Greek philosophers, to probably about the year 1900, probably earlier, let's say, late 1600s, when we were just at the beginnings of the, well, post-Reformation, beginning of the Enlightenment, and then eventually, of course, by the end of the 1700s, the early Industrial Revolution. So, that was the period where much of our Human existence, and particularly the environment of being a human, what well, became unstable. And we know this, and we see this in the data, because all you need to do is look at economic uh, statistics, the famous GDP stats, which actually is a terrible measure to understand economies today and an incredibly good measure to understand economics from antiquity to today, because it's looking at flows. And what you see is this incredible spurt up, starting in the 1700s. And that unstability is really important because it reflects change. And why change is so important is that in a world of constancy, you can stick to the same frame and you can actually simply execute on what you know and how you think the world works. The mental model that you have probably is the only one that you're going to need, right? But in a period of change in which the environment itself is unstable, you need to be creative and you need to do different things in order to succeed. And it's not clear what needs to change. It's not clear when it needs to change or if it needs to change at all. So often, you're actually better off by, if you will, not thinking outside the box, but thinking inside the box, keeping it, right? Just simply playing with a couple constraints, imagining something different, just playing with the counterfactuals, but sticking to the original frame that you have. But lo and behold, the day will come when you actually do need to reframe and you need to be wise about it. And so we have a book that empowers people to make good decisions, to know when to stay and when to sort of rethink things.
2: Uh, The the digital age is great. There's a lot of data. And to to support what Ken uh, is saying, this data helps you, in fact, when the environment is stable. But if you reflect back and look at the greatest human achievement, very often, maybe not always, but they very often happen before the data is available to justify those decisions and those innovations. And you see that in science, for instance, all the time. If you take the Higgs boson, Peter Higgs, with a counterfactual within the frame of quantum uh, physics, imagined the existence of of a new particle. They had no way to have the data to see it. You had to wait 50 years, spend 10 billions of euros or dollars to build the means to see it. And you, again, you have it with with Einstein and all that. So you can go back to the history of science again and again, people using their counterfactual without the data can go well beyond. And you see that in business. I mean, like what is a good entrepreneur is someone who has a new business plan and he does not have or she does not have the data to support that decision. And we can say, well, it looks similar to what has been done here and there But what is really disruptive is when you bring a mental model here of a business model and you apply it without having the data to prove it. And in hindsight, oh yeah, of course, yes, I mean, it's working. So yes, the digital age, the data is very useful as long as you are in your current job or in stable environment and you can use your existing frames. But the true, true disruptive ideas, innovation decisions happen without the data
0: exist to prove it right. You've given us a lot of reasons to be better framers. But before going deeper into business, let's talk about education. Does our education system, be it childhood education or business executive education, equip us to be good framers? And if not, what do you think is missing?
1: That is such a good question and so essential. The answer is sort of ja, which is a cross between ja und nein, yes and no in German, which is to say, In some instances, we do an amazingly good job of training people to become good framers. And in other domains, we do a very lousy one. So where we do it well, the whole point about early childhood education is largely about framing, allowing toddlers to get into everything, to experiment, to drop milk, to lift things, to sort of see what happens when you stick your hand into paint and then dab the paint onto the wall. It frustrates parents, but it's actually a very good way for them to experiment. And it's for that purpose and for that reason that the famous developmental psychologist Alison Gottnick refers to children as the scientists in the crib, the title of one of her books, because of just that ability to think in causality, to think and learn counterfactual reasoning. So all of that's great. The problem happens that when they get into the formal educational system, there the system sort of amputates that creativity of framing. And it tries to impose and, and sort of stuff like a, like a Christmas goose down the gullet information and actually tries to, in some respects, deny alternative frames and alternative ways of thinking for one pure answer. Try thinking of geometry outside of Euclid. The world might be a better place if we tried, although it's hard to imagine what it could be like. But it's, there certainly would be something like that. The point is that formal education does a particularly lousy job so lousy in fact that the great shift and the great reform that's happening now in education is to transform it so that you can you can teach multiple frames and in our book we identify two case studies of that the first one is Joel Padolny at Apple University who left Yale where he's the dean of the Yale School of Management to go over on Steve Jobs call to build up Apple University to teach the Apple executives, as he was trying to teach the Yalies, which is to say, learn things from multiple angles, from multiple perspectives, from different frames, and to to build up a repertoire of frames. But more interestingly still, in the book, we do a, a very nice little vignette on the Harvard Business School case study and the history of the case study, which interestingly is celebrating its 100th year this year. And what we talk about is why it's so special is it really brings in young students and teaches them a diversity of frames so that they build up a repertoire so that when they confront a situation in business, they have some sort of depth to call on that they can say, oh, I think it's this is a way to think about it, or this is another way to think about it. Yet it's still limited. And it's limited because we need to go beyond the case study to recognize that even in a formal educational setting where you're graded by imposing what your teacher taught you to the problem at hand, we need to think even more broadly.
0: So let's come to business. Your book seems to be about framing in the context of decision-making in business. And I find myself wondering whether there's any such thing as a decision anymore, namely whether there are occasional discrete decisions to be made, or in this fast-moving world, whether it's more of a continuous process.
2: Well, I mean, if you ask me, what defines a decision problem is when you face uncertainty. Without uncertainty, there's no decisions. I mean, you execute. I mean, I'm not talking about ethical decision problems, but basically, if you know exactly how the future is going to uh, happen, there's no decisions to make. It's, it's a problem of implementation. So what defines a decision problem is the level of ambiguity, and the more ambiguous or uncertain your situation is, the more of a decision problems you have. So I would disagree with you. I think we are in a world where we are facing gazillions of decision problems. And the COVID experience is a testimony for that. I mean, you confront it. All your data becomes useless overnight. You do not have much guides to make your decisions. The only thing you're using is your own representations about how your system works, how your supply chain is going to be disrupted. This is really the model you hold in your company, the representations about the whole system that is going to help you because your data is, are gone. So yes, we live in an age of decisions and decisions and decisions.
0: I'm not sure whether you know, but our founder, Bruce Henderson, who was one of the founders of competitive strategy, wrote about business decision-making and business problem-solving. And he said that the, essentially there were basic differences between textbook problem-solving and business problem-solving. Usually in business, we don't have all of the data. Secondly, the situation is changing. And thirdly, we don't really ever need a perfect solution. we need a good enough solution given the resources and time available? And a large part of the answer, he said, was continuous iterative reframing. So I'm wondering whether that is in tune with your way of thinking about framing.
1: It's so interesting because it it turns out we did look at the story of Bruce Henderson. We didn't include it in the book, but I was very animated by it, because of his incredible work of if you will creating a frame such as the the learning curve and the experience curve in which you can actually calculate what your costs will be out into the future simply by based of what your costs are today over time absolutely brilliant and what henderson was talking about then actually is an echo of what was in the very first harvard business review case study in which they didn't ask the students for the answer they asked the students first to frame the problem Right? And then they, they, wanted to, they wanted the abstraction and they, to make a representation of what the issue was. Then they wanted the answer, but they didn't see the answer as the foremost and most important thing. Now, sadly, I think that business education and business in general has strayed from that. And I think, as to pick up what Francis had said earlier, we're making small decisions, petty decisions, but we're not making those decisions deliberately by thinking about the frames that we apply and asking ourselves, how can we adjust the frame, or how can we think use a different frame? If we did that, I think we'd be making different decisions, and we'd probably have stronger businesses and stronger
0: economies. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was the social aspect of framing. We've talked today about the decisions of individuals, but of course, things happen in businesses when ideas scale, when individuals sell narratives to others, they align their mental models. And we turn an individual idea into a collective reality. So I wanted to ask you, what is the sociology of framing? How does my framing influence your framing? So you're right, especially in in organization, at
2: least, that there is a risk that the frame that the leadership tried to put in place for good reasons, to enforce coordinations, to make sure the implementations of any strategy works well, that influence everybody to quickly find a consensus. And I think the, the way you want to fight that in an organization is to make sure there is enough, reper- I mean, enough diversity of frames is to leave sometimes to your, um, to your teams, to your employees, sometimes to think about all those problems alone so that they get anchored on your frames and not influenced to whatever frame is advocated in the organizations. It's a problem because it creates frictions. Uh, maybe your implementation is not going to be as perfect. But this is what may save you uh, the day there is a critical change in the organization when you develop a new strategy that you bring enough diversity of point of view on your problem to expand the set of your alternatives. I mean, in the end, to go back to what framing does to you, is it's defined the set of alternatives you can do. So if you frame your, your problem in a certain way, you're going to limit yourself in one corner. If you frame it in a different way, you, fr- you, you limit yourself in another corner. So framing is what is going to elicit maybe new alternatives you didn't think about. And in organization, we tend, because of the culture, because of the people we hire, we tend to very quickly gravitate around the same way of thinking about and seeing the world. And to find that, you need to create independence and you need to give cognitive freedom of people to have their own opinion Even if it's wrong, it doesn't matter. Maybe tomorrow is going to be right. So protecting that
0: that independent voice is key and is difficult. In business strategy, as you know, the essential trade-off at the heart of it is between exploration and exploitation, the exploration of new ideas and products and business models and the exploitation of successful ones. So entrepreneurs essentially have a search problem. They're searching for success and big companies are usually trying to Optimize the success recipe found by the entrepreneur. Strikes me that this is quite similar to the question of when to reframe and when not to reframe. Do you guys have a different word for the idea of ambidexterity?
1: You know, um, I love your term, Martin. Uh, we actually included a small section on George Marsh's exploration and exploitation. And in the end, we edited it out uh, a lot of the book. I think the success of a book is not just what's in it, but what you take out to make it as compact and concise as possible. And I think Francis and I both have a heavy heart because we particularly liked George Marsh's famous sort of duality, because it is so it feels so timeless, the exploration and exploitation way of considering strategy and action. We don't have a term for it, though, and I think it needs one. So we might use yours, Mark.
2: The point is that this is a very powerful frame, because in itself, it's a, it's a way to represent the situation you're facing and try to highlight some aspect of many problems, which is the trade-off between today and the future. And you were mentioning entrepreneurs are focusing on exploring. Even entrepreneurs are facing, do I survive today <laughs> or you know, or do I explore in the future? Do I guarantee my, my cash? Do I secure my capitals and all that? So this is a very um, powerful frame that you can find in many situations. The question is, of course, how do you solve that? And there are many ways to, again, frame the situation that helps you do both at the same time.
0: Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. It's been a fascinating conversation about a fascinating book and a fascinating topic. So I want to thank Ken Cookier and Francis de Vericord for a very interesting book, Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology in Turmoil," published by Dutton in 2021. I'll actually be recommending this book to our project leaders, Because in business, of course, problem solving begins with problem framing. And I think this is a very large part of their jobs. And I think you've given us some very valuable hints with your book, for which I'd like to thank you again. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thank you.